and you're listening to a sermon from Bent Tree Church in Loveland, Colorado. For more information about Bent Tree, visit BentTreeChurch.com. As Don mentioned, I am Wade Williams. I'm one of the shepherding elders here at Bent Tree Church, and so uh, from time to time, I get an opportunity to preach, and so I'm excited uh, to do that this morning. Uh, We're going to continue a sermon series that I have started in the book of Colossians. So if you have your Bible, you can go ahead and uh, open up to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to be studying uh, the verses that Don just read, Colossians 1, 15 through 20. Uh, A a month ago, a couple of months ago, I got to preach uh, Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. And I'll build off of a little bit of that um, today, uh, but but primarily really going to look into 15 to 20. And this is a, a really unique text, and I'm Excited to be here with you this morning. Uh, made it back in town last night. Uh, had an opportunity to, to leave for a little while. Uh, a couple of days and go duck hunting. And so uh, don't worry for those of you who are environmentalists and are, you know, want to save the animals. I'm not that good of a shot. Okay. So all I did was fire a couple of warning shots to let the ducks know never to come back to that area again. They're all safe. Don't worry. Okay. Um, but went duck hunting and, and had that chance. And it's a, it's a lot of fun, but there's something really interesting that happens in duck hunting that's relevant to the text that we're going to look at today. And that's this, that when you duck hunt, you put out a bunch of, of decoys, right? Fake ducks. And you do that in order to try to draw ducks in. But it is amazing how quickly a real duck can tell that something is wrong if your decoys are not set up right. As a human being in the, in the duck blind or away in some cover, I'm looking at our decoys and they look great. Everything looks beautiful and I'm thinking to myself, if I was a duck, I would land right here so that I could shoot it, right? And the ducks have a completely different idea. It, it could be the most minute thing that I as a human being would never notice about the way that the ducks are positioned or the way that one of them is moving or anything like that. But they really quickly recognize that something is not right and they flare and they fly away and they never come back. And we as human beings actually have some innate things inside of us where we do that as well. In, in art, there is a concept known as the uncanny valley. And in art, the uncanny valley basically says this, that if you're trying to make something that is human, you either have to really miss it or you have to nail it, okay? If you're making a a cartoon of a human being and it's a cartoon and it's a caricature, it's fine. People, People will love it. But if you try to make something that's intended to be realistic and it's not, because we've had so many interactions with human beings, because we've seen so many human faces, Because we've had all of this data into our minds about what's taking place, if you miss it, it actually creeps us out. It's almost there, but it's not quite there. This is the uncanny valley. You look at it from a certain perspective, and it it really is an attempt to be human, but we really quickly recognize that this is almost human, but not quite. And it is the very fact that it is almost but not quite, that makes it so spooky. That gives you that eerie feeling inside when you're talking to a chat bot that won't admit that it's a robot, right? 
there are all of these different things that happen that set off our antennas and they give us kind of that eerie feeling, uh, as it were in, in the comic book world, our spidey senses go off. Something is wrong here. Something is amiss. In the same way that the duck flying in from hundreds of feet above the ground can look at this little patch of fake ducks and know something's amiss here and get out of there. We as human beings have the uncanny valley. It tells us that something's not quite right and it gives us the creeps. And, and Paul today is going to address the Colossians and he's going to teach them about pure doctrine. I love that our brother Don just prayed for pure doctrine within our church. And when Paul is teaching them about pure doctrine, what he's actually doing is he's helping the Colossian church develop their own uncanny valley. See, the real work of a theologian is not to simply distinguish between truth and error, between right and and wrong. The real work of a theologian is to distinguish between right and almost right. The uncanny valley where theological error flourishes if we don't have enough interactions with good theology, enough of a deep understanding of good theology, so that when the fake comes along, along we immediately recognize it. We need to develop our own uncanny valley, as it were, theologically. So if you remember last time we met uh, and, and looked at the book of Colossians, we talked about in verses 1 to 14 about how the gospel had come to the church in Colossae through Epaphras who had, who had taught it to them. And Paul said that they had the hope of heaven in them through the gospel. And it was that hope of heaven that was changing everything around Colossae. We talked about the gospel as the salvation of the individual soul, but not just the individual soul but also the entire created order. It was the restoration of all things and how the transcendent reality of the fact that we're simultaneously on this earth and a part of the end time kingdom of God was changing the way that they lived. They were growing in knowledge, Paul said, and bearing fruit. The truth of the gospel was being borne out in their lives. And so Paul was commending them for the way that they had believed in the gospel and it was changing everything about them. But Paul is also writing them They're doing really well, but Paul knows that in Colossae, there is something that is known as the Colossian heresy that's going around. The Colossian heresy. And Paul never tells us exactly what the Colossian heresy is in the book of Colossians. But a lot of scholars and theologians have really boiled it down to a couple of elements of of false teaching that was going around, not necessarily in the church, but these were just ideas that were alive and well in that city. And one of them was that Jesus was just an angel. He's another, they were really into angel worship. It was kind of the spiritual thing for them, right? To be into angel worship. And so Jesus is is just another angel. And that there are these other appearances of angels that have all taken place. And he's just another one of those. And that everything physical was bad. And so you'll notice later on in the book, Paul is going to go after some of those different ideologies and teach how they're incompatible with Christianity. They're incompatible. But, and we'll get our chance to do that too. I can't, we talk about a sermon that I'm excited about, okay? To be able to unload on all of the terrible ideologies and false, vague spirituality that exists within the world at large, but especially Northern Colorado right now. It's everywhere, it's rampant. But before we go there, we need to look at what's real. We need to look at what's right. And so Paul actually begins his letter with them 
commending them and teaching them true doctrine so that they develop that uncanny valley. When somebody comes to them with these false ideas, they know immediately something is amiss. This is not right. If you look at Colossians chapter two, verse eight, Paul touching on the problems that are there says this. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. There's the warning. It's the big overlay of what's happening with the Colossian heresy. And so Paul actually begins to teach here in verses 15 through 20 in what is really an ancient hymn or a creed. An ancient hymn or a creed. Now, I know that may sound funny because we, we know in our day we have things like the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed that were developed in the 3rd century on to the 7th century, different timelines when they came around. But it's actually true that in the early church, as early as Paul's writings, that there were certain creeds or hymns that went around that early Christians recited for the very purpose of helping them understand and have pure doctrine. They wanted right doctrine. And so Paul here, many scholars would agree that in the commentary that I relied heavily on was by a guy named Doug Moo, that what Paul is actually doing here is he's quoting someone else. He's quoting a hymn that was really well known among the early Christian church. And that's not uncommon. You may remember Pastor Paul in our Songs of the Savior series talked about Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 through 11. And it's known as the hymn of Christ. It was an ancient hymn that the early church recited. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 3 to 5. The Apostle Paul delivers what was an early creed for the church. And one of them that stands out the most, that would be most recognizable as a a hymn or a poem or a creed, is actually in 1 Timothy 3.16. And so I want to invite you, if you have your Bible, I want you to turn with me to 1 Timothy 3.16. And and the reason you can see it here better is because of the way that the translators of most English Bibles have even set this apart within the pages of Scripture. You'll notice as you're reading 1 Timothy 3.16 in your Bible, it's not full lines that are single space the way most of scripture is, it's actually centered. And there's a lot of extra space there that, that to the modern reader symbolizes to us that this is a hymn or a poem. And listen to the way that this actually sounds like a creed, like something that you would recite to help you understand and learn and memorize good doctrine. First Timothy 3.16, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. Here comes the creed. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Quick prose. That's not Paul-like language, okay? Paul is long and eloquent and run on sentences, right? And what you have here is something that's much more like Hemingway, right? It's quick to the point, prose. And so you hit, you're hit with these theological ideas one after the other in a way that you would be in a creed. And in the same way, Paul does that today in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. 
These things were used by the early church to make sure that people knew the truth about who Jesus was. Having agreed upon doctrine and creeds made sure that people could distinguish between truth and lie, between true and almost true. And we have some today that we use. They're a little bit longer. They're more drawn out. They're developed to a a little bit greater of a, a degree. But things like I said earlier, the apostles and the Nicene Creed are laid out by the early church fathers with the very purpose of helping Christians to understand what exactly it is we believe about Jesus and being presented in such a way so that it's rhythmic, it's poetic, and it's memorable. It's a way for us to nail down good doctrine. So in this creed, I want to take just a moment and look at the structure because the structure here is going to determine the way that we're going to spend the rest of our time together. Okay, so structurally in Colossians 1, 15 through 20, there are really two separate pieces here. And I'm going to highlight them as two separate pieces because of the repetition of language that Paul uses. Okay, so if you notice it, I'm going to break it into 15 through 17 and then 18 through 20. But if you notice in 15 through 17, the idea of the firstborn comes up. The idea of the firstborn is then repeated in verse 18. The fact that Christ is the beginning in verse 18 and he is before all things. Whenever you read it in verse 17, we see in verse 16, there's mention of things on heaven and on earth. And then in verse 20, it says whether on earth or in heaven. So there's a lot of repetition of language to where this is really broken into two sections. And so for our time today, we're actually going to look at each of these sections individually. And I would categorize them this way. The first one tells us about Christ's rank who he is and his rightful place within the created order, 15 through 17. And then verses 18 through 20, Paul changes tune a little bit and he starts to talk about Christ, who he is, his rank, and his rightful place within the church. Created order and the church. So we'll look at each of these in turn. We'll begin with Jesus' rank in the created order. We start off with a a little bit of a heavy hitter in verse 15. Look back with me at the text. It says that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, this this is interesting because Jesus, we're being told here, is the image of something that you can't see. He's the image of the invisible God. So how exactly do you look like something that you can't look at? Well, I think that it's, it's instructive here that we're told that he's the image of the invisible God because and it, God is some, you cannot see God. And so what the Bible is really trying to get across here is not that Jesus is the image of the invisible God the way that I am the image of my father, right? I look like my dad. We have the same nose. We have the same mannerisms, right? There are all of these different things. But the Bible is not trying to teach us here that Jesus' arms look like God the Father's arms. Or that Jesus' smile, it looks like God the Father's smile. No, God is invisible. We're not talking about physical attributes. When Jesus is the image, he lets us see or get a glimpse of or helps us understand what God the Father is like. Turn with me, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. And you you may even want to put a little bookmarker or your your finger there because we're going to go back to Hebrews chapter 1 because Hebrews 1, 1 to 3 
There are a lot of parallels in what's being talked about there by the author of Hebrews and the things that we see Paul talking about here in Colossians chapter 1. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So we have that in your mind that Jesus is teaching us what God is like. Or as the author of Hebrews would say, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in the last days, he had spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. Not for physical attributes, but for the exact imprint of his nature. Is God compassionate? Was Jesus compassionate? Is God just? Was was Jesus just? Is God love? Was Jesus loving? If you want to know what God is like, Look at Jesus. He teaches us. He shows us. He is the word of God. How does someone know what you're thinking? You speak. You want to know what God is like? He's spoken through his son. He has told us what he is like through Jesus. In that way, Jesus images God. We're going through the gospel of John when Pastor Paul preaches, so I'd be remiss if I didn't put before you John chapter 1, verse 18. Just to hammer it home. No one has ever seen God. He's invisible. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. Speaking of Jesus, at the Father's side has made him known. We see what God is like. God has made himself known through Jesus. But if you think about the Colossian heresy, Jesus is just another angel. You would almost be tempted to think that, oh, so Jesus is just a special messenger angel, right? If you were in Colossians and you just, he's the image of the invisible God. Okay, God's made himself known through Jesus. But Paul doesn't let us stop there, right? Because there's more to Jesus than just him being the image of God, to him being a messenger who tells us what God is like. Look at the rest of verse 15. It says, he is the firstborn of all creation. Now, the firstborn of all creation here is not talking about birth order, okay? It's not talking about birth order. And I'll I'll prove my point to you here in just a second, but it would be a mistake for us to read firstborn of all creation and for us to simply think that, oh, well, Jesus was just the first thing that God made, right? God the Father made Jesus first. That's why he's the firstborn. And then everything goes from there. The rest of this passage that we're gonna look at later does not give us that option. It shows us that Jesus is an uncreated eternal being. He's one with God the Father. But the firstborn language is used here in a way that would have been well understood by the readers. Because at this time, and in particular in this part of the world, there was a law called primogeniture. Primogeniture. It's a big word, right? But the law of primogeniture simply meant this. It was a system of inheritance where the firstborn son... It says rightful heir on here, but you're really looking for your firstborn son, got everything. There was no inheritance for anyone else in the family. So being a second born son, if we still lived under the law of primogeniture, my brother 
when my parents pass away, would get everything that is theirs. There's nothing for me. There's no 50-50 split in the ancient world. Think of it more like the aristocracy that we know from Great Britain and other parts of the world where the firstborn son is the rightful heir to everything. Remember back in Hebrews chapter one, he is the heir, the inheritor of all things. Primogeniture was was so much of a big deal and you see it in biblical text like Genesis 27 with Jacob and Esau. Isaac is getting ready to give a blessing to his oldest son, Esau. And Jacob tricks him in Genesis chapter 27 and comes in. He's already stolen the birthright, but there's a blessing that goes along with it. And Jacob comes in and steals the blessing. And I'm just gonna read 36 through 38. And I just want you to listen for the level of finality that comes with the birthright and the blessing under the law of primogeniture. Now, in this case, the younger brother is gonna steal it, but listen to how final it is. Esau, speaking to his father, after Jacob has stolen it, says, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Then he said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? And Isaac answered and said to Esau, Behold, I have made him Lord over you, and all his brothers I have given to him for servants. And with grain and wine, I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? And Esau said to his father, have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. And Jacob said, there's nothing for you. Jacob's got it all. He now has the place of the firstborn son. It's all his. And so when the apostle Paul brings Jesus to us and he says, he's the firstborn of all creation. What he wants you to understand is it's all his. It's all his. Every single bit. Or as the Dutch theologian and former prime minister of the Netherlands would say, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ who is Lord of all, does not exclaim, mine. Abraham Kuyper said it well. It is all his, every bit, not a square inch outside of his domain. Jesus is the firstborn. So he inherits it all, but there's more than that. He's not just the one who's revealing us to what God the Father is like. He's not just the one who's the inheritor of the entire created order. We find out in verse 16 that there's even more to the story. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority. All things were created through him and for him. So we see that Jesus was actually present at creation. He cannot be the first thing created. He's the firstborn in that he is the inheritor of all. It's all rightfully his, but he's not the firstborn in the sense that he was created in that way. He's there at creation. He's present. It was actually through him that the entire created order came about. So how? Jesus was was present 
at creation. Where do we see that? How do, how do we get that? Well, one, I would say we look at Colossians 1.16 and it tells us that it was through him and for him that all things were created. That's a huge clue. But if we examine really closely with the eyes of faith, what scripture says, we come to understand some things about Jesus. In John chapter one, we read this about Jesus. It says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Now the, the logos language there that's being used in John chapter one in those spots where it says word is referring to Jesus as the wisdom of God, as the word of God. We've already read in Colossians chapter one that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. It's through Jesus that we learn about God. It is through Jesus that God has spoken to us. There's special revelation, God teaching us things about himself through Jesus that we wouldn't otherwise know. So Jesus is the word of God through which God is made known. He was in the beginning with God, so he was already there. John chapter one affirms what we see in Colossians chapter one in verse three, where it says all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. So Jesus was there as the word. Now, I know this with the eyes of faith, understand in creation, in creation, how is it that God created the universe? The, the really fancy theological term, we say that he created all things through speaking and ex nihilo. So from nothing is what ex nihilo means. So there was nothing there. And by speaking, God took nothing and turned it into something. Through his word, the entire creation came about. Genesis 1 verse 3, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. It is through the word of God that the entire created order came about. And the Bible says that Jesus is the word of God. They're linked in a way that we can't really fully understand and explain, but we know that it's there. And the biblical text accounts for it. That is why verse 17 says that he is before all things. He can't be a created being. He's before all things. And... Jesus teaches us what God is like. He's the inheritor of all creation. He's actually the source of all creation. But, there, but wait, there's more. I feel like I'm on a late night infomercial, right? But wait, there's more. Look at the end of verse 17. It says, and in him all things hold together. So Jesus as creator is, is not the old, uh, the way the old deist would explain it, the people who just believed in a, a God but didn't really have a lot of parameters for what that God was like. And they had the, the clockmaker theory that God is like a clockmaker who made the clock. He winded up, he let the creation go, and he just walked away. And it's over there. Colossians 1 doesn't give us that option for understanding who God is. There's an uncanny valley there. I hear that. Creeps me out, right? That's not what the the biblical text tells us about who God is. It says that in him, all things hold together. I told you to hold your your finger at Hebrews chapter one. Look at verse three there again. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. The whole universe being upheld by Jesus, 
by the word of his power. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get a little bit scientific here, and hopefully I don't, I don't go too far. But I, I want to present it to you in a way that hopefully helps you, you think about it. Because the fact that Jesus is holding the entire world together may seem a, a little abstract. But, but I just want to point out some things when it comes to, to science and the way that we understand the world. Okay, So we know that some of the smallest units, we've gotten a little bit smaller in recent scientific time, but one of the smallest basic units that makes up the entire universe is called an atom, right? And every element has its own makeup within an atom, certain numbers of protons and neutrons and electrons, okay? And I know that when I was in sixth or seventh grade and my science teacher was teaching this, they didn't really point this fact out. But it was something that I was, uh, as I was reading and studying for this, that several people pointed out is that there's a law, there's a law in physics that's called Combs' Law. Um, and Combs' Law says that certain charges react with each other in different ways, okay? So we know like with a magnet, if you have a positive end and a negative end and you put them next to each other, what happens? They, the positive and negative go together. But if you put like charges together, positive and positive, you push them together, they push away, they repel, okay? I never thought of this. Is it not the craziest thing? What is in the middle, the nucleus of an atom? It's the protons and neutrons. All of the positive charges are stuck together. You know, the ones that are supposed to repel from one another? They're all stuck together in the middle of an atom. And so scientists back in the 1930s looked at this and they were like, man, that's kind of crazy. Those things are supposed to push apart. Why don't they push apart? And they developed something that's known as quantum chromodynamics. And this is the best that they could come up with with quantum chromodynamics is that there's some strong force. It's literally just called the strong force that holds the things that should repel all of the positively charged protons in the middle of an atom. There's just a strong force that holds those things together. That's what we got. Now, there's a little bit of scientific explanation that goes behind that, but we keep digging deeper and deeper and deeper. But under everything we uncover, there's another mystery of how it could work that way. And this is all I want to put before you right now. That if we took Jesus away from the universe, the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power that is holding all things together. If we took Jesus away from the universe, quantum chromodynamics would cease to work. Combs' law would continue to work and all of the protons at the middle of every atom in the universe would all fly apart immediately in one giant nuclear explosion. It is Jesus who governs the laws of the universe and by the word of his power holds everything together. He is not absent from our world. He is still very much involved in our world. So from this short, the first stanza of this creed, this is what we get. We learn that Jesus is the revealed word of God by whom God has made himself known. We learn that Jesus is the inheritor of the entire created order. It's all his. But not only is it his, he made it. 
He is the creator of the universe. And not only is the creator of the universe, he continues to give paternal watch care, like a dad caring for his children, continues to look after and sustain the entire universe. The verses that Paul is giving us here are heavy hitters when it comes to who Jesus is and what we as Christians should understand about him. People often say, well, if God's out there, why doesn't he just come down and reveal himself and say, here I am. And with Colossians chapter one and the testimony of the scriptures, we say, that's exactly what he did. And we killed him for it. Because in unbelief, we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. We killed him for it. But he did it. Exactly what we're asking for, he did. He has made God known. He is the first. He is preeminent in the created order. But Paul doesn't leave us there. Next, we go to the church. Look at chapter 1, verses 18 to 20. It says that he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. For the church, we see that there's a lot of similar language. First, we see that Jesus is the head of the church. And this has a a kind of a double meaning where it could be like if you went to a river and you went to the fountainhead of a river, that is the source and the place from which all of the rest of it comes. Jesus is the fountainhead of the church. It is from him, through him, for him, that the entire church exists in the same way that it is with the created order. He's the head, but he's also the head in the sense that he's the authority over the church. He has full authority over the created order. He has full authority over the church. In a book on uh, recovering biblical manhood and womanhood, there's a really great modern theologian. His name's Wayne Grudem. And in that book, Wayne Grudem literally spends 43 pages of an appendix, 43 pages proving that the word used for head here, as it is in Ephesians chapter five, means authority or ruler that Jesus is unequivocally the ruler and the head of the church so I want to get a little bit practical for us for just a minute so when we talk about Bentry we say whose church is this this is Jesus church and we love pastor Paul and he knows I'm going to say this this is not his church This is Jesus' church. Who's the head of this church? Jesus is the head of Bent Tree Church. And if he's not, may God have mercy on us. Jesus is the head, but he's also the firstborn from the dead. Firstborn. Firstborn from the dead of the resurrection. In the sense that Jesus is like the first fruits of a harvest. When you go out late in the summer, and there's, you, you know, you're planted something. I'm in Mississippi. I love to go out whenever I'm back home with my aunt and go to her blueberry bush. And the first ripe blueberries that come up in the summer are the best. But you know what they tell you? Is that there's more to come. 
And so Jesus is the firstborn of those that are raised from the dead. In that, he's the first fruits and he's the firstborn in the law of primogeniture. He's the inheritor of everyone who will be raised from the dead. Titus chapter two, verse 14 says it this way, speaking of Jesus, that he gave himself for us to redeem us from lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. He's the head of the church because he is the firstborn from the dead. He's the rightful inheritor of the church. Of all of those who put their trust in him, we are his possession. He is our God. We are his people. Look at the end of verse 18. I got to confess, as I was studying and reading, it was the end of verse 18 where I was like, couldn't this have been said earlier? (laughs) That in everything he might be preeminent. It's like, Paul, you already said that Jesus made the entire created order and that he's the firstborn of all the created. He's the rightful inheritor of the entire created order. Why do you need the little old lowly church in here too before you say that he's preeminent over everything? And I was reading it and I was like, why, why now? Why at the end? Why, why down here after you've talked about the church do you say that he's preeminent over everything? And then it, it finally in a, in a moment of just like exhilaration, the Holy Spirit working just showed me, remember the biblical storyline? There's creation, fall, redemption, new creation. And we talked about this last time. So if this is not familiar to you, this is a big outline of the, the biblical story. Creation, fall, redemption, and new creation. And as I was, was sitting here thinking about this, it was like, oh my goodness. Who's, who's here? Who's in the new heavens and the new earth? The church. The church, the, the people of God are with him in the new heavens and the new earth. And so what Paul is teaching us is that Jesus is preeminent over everything. The creation and the new creation. This world and the world that is to come. There is not a single piece of all of created order now or forevermore that does not belong to Jesus. He's preeminent in all. And in the same way that Jesus sustains this entire created order, he'll do the same thing in the new creation. This isn't in the notes, but if you would turn with me to Hebrews chapter seven, verse 25, this is one of those verses that has always just stood out to me. In Hebrews 7, verse 25, and I'm actually going to read from the amplified version here. But it says this. It says, therefore, speaking of Jesus, he is able to save forever those who come to God through him since he always lives to intercede and intervene on their behalf. Okay. In the same way, that Jesus is holding the entire universe together by the word of his power, making sure that our atoms don't turn into a nuclear explosion, 
The Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews that he will forever be there in heaven, interceding for us. The sins that we've committed, that Jesus has pushed as far as the east is from the west, in the book of Hebrews, it tells us, you know why the entire new creation sustains and why it doesn't fall apart? You want to know why it is that God doesn't 10,000 years from now decide that he wants to cast us into hell for the way that we disobeyed his law? It's because the creator and sustainer of the universe, the firstborn of those from the dead is always there forever interceding and pleading on our behalf that those sins stay as far as the east is from the west. So that in the new creation, we are sustained forever by Jesus. That he might be preeminent in everything, everywhere, at all times, for all times. Verses 19 and 20, drive it home. For in him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. He has purchased for himself a people for his own possession. And he will sustain. He's over all things, visible, invisible, on earth and in heaven, in the creation and the new creation. It's all his. So why does this matter? end with just a a little bit of application here. Well, one, one big reason for why this matters is it's the truth and the truth matters. And if we find ourselves believing things that are heresy, then what we end up finding is that we're actually not a part of those people that he purified for his own possession and that we'll spend eternity apart from Jesus. The truth of who Jesus is is matters and believers must believe rightly about who God is and who Jesus is. The second thing, we should look to the creeds, not only the ones we see in the Bible, but the ones that have been developed by faithful men throughout human history to help us understand what it is we rightfully believe as Christians, to help us develop our own uncanny valley. The Apostles' Creed The Nicene Creed are great things to memorize to help you be able to distinguish right from almost right. And the biggest thing that I think I want to land on here is that it enhances our worship. In the words of Jerry Shockley, it enhances our worship. When we sing these songs, we sang them this morning, when we sing more of them in just a little while, are you singing to some small God who's weak in power? Or are you singing to the creator and sustainer of the entire universe who has made himself known and not only made himself known, but that he was pleased. He was happy to have the fullness of God dwell in him and to make peace by the blood of his cross. Who are you singing to? See, we talk about theology, theology, and you may think, well, they just want us to have a bunch of theology. No, theology informs doxology. Theology, what we believe, if we see the fullness and the greatness of who God is, the way that the preeminent Christ is presented to us in Colossians chapter one, then it leads to doxology, praise. Praise God. Sam Storms said it this way. 
the ultimate goal of theology isn't knowledge, but worship. If our learning and knowledge of God do not lead us to the joyful praise of God, we failed. We failed. And so Paul was teaching the Colossians what to believe so that they would see the grand and fullness of who Jesus is. And they believed it deeply. They held to the creed so deeply that some of them were killed for it. So I'm going to read what the, uh, the 19th century pastor Joseph Cook had to say, him making an observation about the people that lived in Paul's day. This is what Joseph Cook said. When the Christian martyr Peonius was asked by his judges, what God dost thou worship? He replied, I worship him who made the heavens and who beautified them with the stars and who has enriched the earth with flowers and trees. Dost thou mean, asked the magistrates, him who was crucified? Certainly, replied Peonius, him whom the father sent for salvation of the world. And as Peonius died, so died Baladina and the whole host of those who in the first three centuries, without knowing anything of the Nicene Creed, the one that we have today, they held it implicitly. They actually believed the Nicene Creed, even though it hadn't been written yet, if not explicitly, and they proclaimed it in flames and in dungeons, in famine and in nakedness, under the rack and under the sword. It was what sustained them to know who God was. So in the same way that they held to the creed and that it enhanced their worship and that they believed it so deeply that they would go to the flames for it. I want to close by reading the section of the Nicene Creed that talks about Jesus. Hear the beauty and the parallel from what we've studied today. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, Begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. Begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made, and for us and for our salvation he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and he was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried The third day he rose again according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and he is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom will never end. Amen? Amen. That in all things he might be preeminent. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the work that you've done to make yourself known to us. To send Jesus to give us the apostles and the prophets and the church so that we can truly know who you are. And so, Father, I just pray that for each and every one of us, we would see you, that we would understand what you've done for us in Jesus and the greatness of who Jesus is, and it would lead us to worship God, that we would truly be in awe of the incarnate Christ that we would recognize his authority and power over our own lives and that we would submit to him as king. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Bent Tree Church. 
To get connected at Bentry and for more information, please visit BentreeChurch.com.